It's great to see young boys out tonight. And I'm going to tell you a story, and I hope you'll forgive me if I've told it here before. I didn't look up what I was, the stories I've told before. But this is about a school teacher who was an atheist. He didn't believe... You know what an atheist is? It's a person who says there's no God. He can only say there's no God. Well, this school teacher was wanting to teach his children there's no God. So he got them to write up on the blackboard. He gave them a piece of chalk. Now, write up. He called out a little girl and he says, write out on the blackboard. God is nowhere. Write that out on the blackboard. So the little girl was shaking. She got, she got the chalk and she went out. She wasn't very good at spelling. And actually, do you know what she actually wrote? She wrote, God is N-O. And then she made a wee space before the next letter. Where? W-H-E-R-E. That's what she was meant to do. But she made a mistake where she put the space. And she wrote, God is N-O-W space H-E-R-E. So what she wrote was, God is now here. And you know this? It went straight to the teacher's heart. And if my story is correct, he became a Christian. He was converted through his own wickedness, you could say, and the young girl's simplicity who couldn't spell properly. Instead of writing nowhere, she wrote now here. You remember that, will you? God is everywhere, all of the time. Okay, good to see you out. Right, let's turn to the passage which we read, the chapter we read in Isaiah chapter 64. And as God would help me, I like to concentrate on verses 6 to 8. Isaiah 64 Verses 6 to 8. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name. Who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but prophecy is actually a very difficult thing to define. What exactly is prophecy? If a a doctor takes a biopsy of us and he gets a result from the lab, 
Can he say to you, I'm going to make a prophecy. You've got cancer and you won't live long. Is that prophecy? He's got the result of the biopsy in front of him. Or change the illustration. I'm in a helicopter. And I look out of the helicopter down upon the M8. And I see a car traveling up the wrong side of the road on the M8. And I phone one of my friends and say, I'm going to make a prediction. There's going to be an accident in the next five minutes. Is that prophecy? How do you define prophecy exactly? If you're like me, you'll think that the most important aspect of prophecy is the predictive element. Predicting what's going to happen. But in the Bible, that is not strictly the most important part, element of a prophecy. The most important element of a prophecy is the teaching aspect. Prophecy is actually teaching in the present to prepare you for the future. God knows the future because God has planned the future. And he says, because I know what's going to happen in the future, you behave now like this. So that's the biblical concept of prophecy. Teaching in the present to prepare you for the future. Isaiah was a prophet. And what he's doing here is teaching the people of God how they should live in view of what's going to happen in the future. I, Isaiah explains that God has a great future ahead of Israel. But there's a long wait in between. And Israel cannot get the blessings that God has prepared for them because of the way they've behaved. And you see, chapter 64 is really a continuation uh, right back to chapter 59, verse 1, where God says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. God is saying, I have a great future for you, but you can't have it now until you repent, until you say you're sorry, until you change your mind, until you come back to me. That has to be done first before you'll get these blessings uh, that I have prepared for you. God, in other words, has said to his people, Israel, look, you've behaved abominably, but all can be forgiven. All can be forgiven. Just confess your sins and return to me. But you see, Israel 
were so far away from God for so long they had forgotten how to pray. They had forgotten how to confess their sins and to to seek God's help and God's blessing. So this is what Isaiah is teaching his people here in the verses I've read. He, in verses 6 and 7, there's a prayer of confession. Isaiah is giving them an example here of the proper prayer that would be so suitable for, uh, for Israel at this time. And if they could pray that sincerely, God would hear them and God would give the blessings that he had prepared for them. Do I need to say I don't need to say to you here, do I? The same applies to us. God has a great future ahead of us if, if we repent and turn to him. So as God would help me, I'd like to look first of all at the prayer of confession in verses 6 and 7 and then in verse 8, the prayer for help. Five aspects, five clauses or five things I'd like to look at in the prayer of confession in verses 6 and 7. We have all become well what is it we have all become like one who is unclean that's the first part of the prayer we've all become like one who's unclean god made man upright but we became sinful he made us upright but we became sinful. We perverted that which was right. And now we've become unclean. We've become a corrupt lump of sin. And notice, it might become clearer in in some other versions, we are all as an unclean thing. And you see, the problem is this. We have to confess to God, not simply what we have done, but we have to confess to God what we are. Why do we bad things? I probably told you this story before. The children will tell you. The clock. The minister that tried to sort his clock and he couldn't sort it till eventually, he, after six or seven attempts, he stuck up a notice on the, under the clock saying, don't blame my hands. The problem's inside. Why were the hands of the clock pointing to the wrong time? Because there was something wrong inside. Why do our hands do what's wrong? Why do our feet take us to places where we shouldn't go? Because there's something wrong inside. We need a new inside. And this is what Jesus taught Nicodemus when he said, Nicodemus, except a man is 
born again from above in the inside, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We must be changed inside. It's our inside that's wrong. Our behavior outside is because our inside is all wrong. So we have to learn to confess to God our sinfulness and our sinnership. What we are, not just what we've done. And we have to confess to him we do wrong because we are wrong inside. We have all become like one who's unclean. And it's our fault. We can't point the finger at God. He made man upright. But we have sought out many inventions. That's the first part of the confession. The second part of the prayer of confession, which we have to learn to pray, meaning it ourselves, is our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now, just think of that. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Not our sins. Our righteousnesses are like polluted garments. That's serious. What? That's serious. What are our sins like? If what we consider righteous, good deeds are in God's sight, like an unclean, polluted garment. See, God is holy. God is perfect. Absolutely perfect. And he requires of you and me absolute perfection. And that's why the best that we can do is not good enough. Because it's not absolutely perfect. And to please an absolutely perfect God, our deeds, our actions, our thoughts, our demeanors have to be absolutely perfect. And our righteous deeds are polluted before him. If you take our account with God like a balance sheet, it took me a long time to discover this. Christ's death atoned for all our debt. You've got a balance sheet and you're in debt. Christ's death paid for all the debt. But you see, that only brings us up to the all square level. It's not enough to be all square with God. Our account with God has to be in the credit balance. And that's why we try to be good and do good works. But our Bible's telling us tonight, your good works, your righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Isn't it serious? We're adding more debt by our own righteousness. By doing good works which aren't up to his standard. We're increasing the debt. Now that is where Christ's life comes into play. Christ's death atoned for our sins. Bringing us up to the all square level. 
But if you confess your sins to Christ, Christ will not only forgive you your sins, but he will also give to you his absolutely perfect righteousness as yours, so that you are in the credit balance with God. His death atoned for our debt. His life produces righteousness, transferable righteousness. You see, before Christ left heaven, he was absolutely perfect. He had perfect righteousness. But that perfect righteousness of Christ was, as it were, non-transferable. He couldn't give it to us. But the righteousness, the perfect righteousness, what Christ worked out on earth, was specifically wrought for transferring to human beings who trust them. Our own righteous deeds are polluted garments. But if we believe in Jesus, he gives us his absolutely perfect righteousness for nothing, as well as paying for our sins. Number three, third request in the prayer of confession, we're all like an unclean thing, our righteousnesses are filthy rags. The thing gets worse. We all fade like a leaf. The message there is, the longer we go on, the worse we become. Young people often think it'll be easier to become a Christian when I get older. My dear young friend, it will be more difficult. You're far more set in your ways as you get older. Far more difficult. We fade like a leaf. Our condition is one of deterioration. Instead of getting better, we actually get worse before God. The nature of sin is to deepen and to spread throughout the whole life. That's the nature of sin. It worsens rather than improves with age. We're all as an unclean thing. Our very righteousness is our good things, our filthy rags. And added to that, we're fading like a leaf. We're deteriorating. We're getting worse. We're getting more and more incapable. And there's a fourth thing. Our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. In other words, we've isolated ourselves from the only source of help. We've cut ourselves off from the only one that can help us. We've turned our back on God. We've gone our own way. And we're going further and further and further away. That's you and me by nature. That's the default position 
of the human race as we are by nature. Our iniquities have removed us from the source of help. Can it get any worse? I'm sorry, it can. Number five. Number five in the prayer of confession. You see, everything we said is alarming, to put it mildly. But all can be forgiven if you just call on God. But what's the fifth thing? Verse 7. There is no one who calls upon your name. Isn't that sad? All can be forgiven if you just turn. If you just say sorry to God. All can be forgiven. But alas, silence. Silence. Not a prayer to heaven. Not a prayer to God. That's the default position of sinners. What a great sin unbelief is. God says, look, that's the serious position. But all can be forgiven. Just confess. Just repent. Just depend on Christ. Just call on my name. Just call on my name. Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there is no one who calls upon your name. What an indictment. Isn't it time to change the subject? Isn't it time to rush on to the remedy? The prayer for help in verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you our potter. We are the work of your hands. That's it in short. But there's an awful lot there. And I wanted just to break it down into three, I don't know what we'll call it, categories or aspects or something. The prayer for help has three elements in it. First, the acknowledgement of self-inflicted ruin and utter helplessness. When you turn to God for mercy, acknowledge your self-inflicted ruin spiritually and your utter helplessness to change yourself. That's the first stage, the first element. Second element here is, and it's very important, not only has there to be acknowledgement of our utter helplessness, of our self-inflicted ruin, but there needs to be a genuine desire for cleansing and remolding into righteousness. You see, it's not just negative. It's not just a complaint. We can all complain. And we can all complain amazingly of ourselves. There has to be in this complaint a genuine desire 
to be cleansed from your sin and a genuine desire for righteousness. You must want to be right with God. You must want righteousness. In the Beatitudes, the Saviour said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Do you long to be righteous? Jesus says you're blessed. If you long to be righteous, Jesus says you're blessed. And there's a third element in this short prayer though. It's the fact of the sovereignty of God. You can hear him. We are the clay. You are the potter. We can't change ourselves. Only you can, Lord. You're sovereign. And you're under no obligation to change us. God is under no obligation. He was under no obligation to send his son to Calvary to pay the price of other people's sins. But he did it. He did it. The potter. The potter, of course, is God. And he's sovereign. He can do what he wants. The question is, what does he want to do? What does the potter, what does God want to do about the situation that you and I are in by nature? Our Bible tells us in several places, in several ways, what God wants to do. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's under no obligation to save us, except that he said he wants no one to perish. He has said he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's the sovereign will of someone who hates, who hates the death of the wicked. But because he's holy, he has to. It's a sovereign will of a God who says he wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. The potter delights in mercy. The potter delights in mercy. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Isn't that hopeful? And the potter sent his son to pay the cost of redemption. That's the potter. That's under no obligation. So what does the potter want to do? He sent his son so there'd be atonement for sin. It's not rocket science to guess what he wants to do. Very next chapter, verse 2. Isn't it? No, what verse is it? Verse, ah, verse 65, verse 2. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. He says, all day long, he stretched out his hands to a rebellious people. 
Now, I read in in Jeremiah chapter 18 for a specific reason. We read there about the potter. And it took me a long, long time to realize what's very clearly spelled out there. I always thought, wrongly of course, I always thought when the potter made something and it was clay and it was wrong, I always thought he threw it away. Put it in the bin. Is that what we read? Is that what we read in Jeremiah 18? What did it say there? The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And what did he do? He reworked it into another vessel. Isn't that wonderful? He didn't put it in the dustbin. He didn't cast it off. He reworked it into another vessel. And you see what followed it? Then the word of the Lord came to me and said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Eh? Can God tonight not do with you what he did with that spoiled piece of clay? Can he not remake you? My friend, is that not what God does in the gospel? Is that not what God did with Jacob? What kind of, what kind of guy was Jacob? You know fine the word that's used of him. The authorised version said supplanter. And for years as a kid I had no clue what that meant. Do you know what it means? Jacob, you're a twister. You're a twister. But God remade him. God remade Jacob. And God can remake you. Tonight, Simon Peter, weak, watery wimp of a man, but what did Christ make of him? He made of him a strong, stable rock. I suppose some of you know, I can't verify the truth of it, but it's according to secular history that Peter was crucified upside down. He was to be crucified and he said to those that were crucifying him, I am not worthy to die the same way my Savior died. Crucify me upside down. And according to secular history, which there's no reason to question, that's what happened. They crucified him upside down. The weak, watery wimp of a man before Christ changed him, before Christ transformed him, before Christ reworked the clay. And he can do the same for you tonight, here. He did the same for Saul of Tarsus. He did the same for Mary Magdalene. What do you think of when you think of Mary Magdalene? I used to think of a lovely, sweet, gentle girl. Soft, pleasing, smiling, lovely little girl. I used to think of. But that's not what our Bible says. She had seven devils. Seven devils. 
But the Saviour, the Saviour reworked the clay, remolded the clay, made her a new person in Christ. The woman of Samaria slept around. Christ remolded her. Christ transformed her into a new vessel. And he can do the same tonight with you here. That's what the potter wants. That's what the potter wants. Do you want? Do you want it? Would you like it? He calls out to you. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ is born again of God. It's the same original word. First John chapter 5, First John, the gospel, the epistle of John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ is born again of God. The original word translated born is the same word that Christ used when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And it's the same tonight. What does God want? God wants new creatures in Christ. He wants to remake, rework the clay. Are you clay? Christ is the potter. And he can and he wants to remake the clay. Please call out to him. Please say, create in me a new heart, O God. He's never turned any away. He's never rejected anyone. Call out to him. He has gone on oath to save all who call on his name. Call on his name. May God, the Holy Spirit, make his word effectual to every one of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please take the things of Christ and make them ours tonight. Remake us, rework the clay, transform us, we pray thee. Keep us in your love, keep us in your fear. Wash all our sins away, for we pray in Christ's name and for Christ's sake. Amen. We'll conclude our service of worship by singing four verses from Psalm 51 again and the Scottish Psalter in your Blue Praise Book. It's page 281. Psalm 51 at verse 9. Psalm 51 at verse 9. All mine iniquities blot out. Thy face hide from my sin. Create a clean heart, Lord. Renew a right spirit in me within. Cast me not from thy sight. 
nor take thy Holy Spirit away. Restore me thy salvation's joy with thy free spirit me stay. Then will I teach thy ways unto those that transgressors be, and those that sinners are shall then be turned unto thee. O God of my salvation, God, me from blood guiltiness set free, then shall my tongue aloud sing of thy righteousness. Psalm 51, verses 9 to 14. O mine iniquities blot out thy face I from my sin Create a clean heart Lord renew a right spirit me within cast me nor take thy Holy Spirit away. Restore me thy salvation joy with thy free spirit me stay. Then will I teach thy way unto those that transgressors be and those that sinners are shall then be turned unto thee O God of my God, me from blood guiltiness, set free then shall my Of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.